8. We're getting a couple of minutes late start here, but if you'll turn your Bibles, uh, if you would please, to the book of James. We're in James chapter 3. James chapter 3. One of the themes of the book of James is wisdom. Uh, practical living directed by the Word of God. That's what wisdom is, really. The Bible says in, in chapter 1, verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God to give it to all men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. It's tragic when a Christian lacks uh, practical wisdom, both personally, it's also tragic uh, for the church. Uh, I think it's interesting that a lot of times, uh, even in some of the circles I've been uh in the middle of different pastors' groups, a lot of times the idea is that being spiritual is impractical. There's nothing further from the truth. I think spiritual, being spiritual, being godly is the most practical thing. And so tonight I want to get very practical as we look at this passage in James chapter 3. Uh, let's start reading verse number 13. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable. Notice that order. First pure, then peaceable. Gentle and e the reason I mention that is because we have churches all throughout the land today that make all kinds of compromises to be peaceable. But purity comes before peace here. First pure, then peaceable. I like getting along with somebody just as much as the next guy, but we need to be pure first. Amen. So that's why I mention that. Gentle and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. So let's uh, talk about this for the next few minutes here. Thank you, Father, for the time we have. I pray you bless the reading of your word. Jesus' name, amen. So for the past few months, I've had the distinct joy of teaching my teenage daughter how to drive. How many of you have had that pleasure? That's just wonderful, isn't it? Um, uh, her, her complete, uh, her idea of success is that we didn't die. She'll say that at the end. Well, we didn't die. I mean, like, that's the ultimate goal. Um, you know, I've, it's taken years off my life, but we didn't die this time. So, hey, we didn't die. So, and, and the worst thing is when you're, uh, you almost die and you're hyperventilating over in the passenger because you can't do anything, got no controls. And so you're hyperventilating over there and they kind of roll their eyes like, calm down, dad. What's the big deal? And we almost, we almost died. Um, but tonight, I want you to think of yourself as a car and your life as a road, just for illustration purposes. Uh, you are aware, uh, hopefully, that you are moving along, okay? Um, you're not stationary. Who's older now than you were last week? I think all of us, I'm pretty sure. Um, you're not the same age as you were yesterday. We're moving forward at a relentless rate. Nothing we can do about that. You're moving towards a destination, and one day, your journey will end. One day, you're going to run out of gas. Amen. Not that we're old. Old is always 15 years older than I am, right? That's how we look at it usually. Uh, but we got to realize, uh, careful there. We got to realize that just like a car, I haven't picked on him in two messages. I'm getting rusty here. Uh, just like a car, sometimes we break down. 
And uh, sometimes we need to be adjusted. Sometimes we need some repair. Uh, I want to read you something Ann Landers wrote a couple years ago. Man is like an automobile. As he gets older, the differentials start slipping. The U-joints get worn, causing the drive shaft to go bad. The transmission won't go into high gear and sometimes has difficulty getting out of low. The cylinders get worn and lose compression, making it hard to climb the slightest incline. The carburetor gets fouled with pollutants, making it hard to get started in the morning. It's hard to keep the radiator filled because of leaks. I'm going to leave that one alone. We'll just move right on there. The, the thermostat goes out, making it difficult to reach operating temperature. The headlights grow dim. The horn grows weaker. The memory chip drops a few bytes. The battery needs constant recharging. But if the body looks good with no bangs, chips, or dents, we can keep it washed and polished, giving the impression that we can compete with newer models. Uh, there's, uh, that's, that's kind of like a car in that way. Uh, there's other parallels as, as well. We can be driving along at a pretty good clip, and other times we barely creep along. Uh, when you think about it, life is like a road, and we're like the car on it. So tonight's question I want to ask you is who's driving you? Who is driving you? When the Bible is clear here tonight in our text, there's only two possible drivers for our cars. James identifies them here. One driver is false wisdom. One driver is true wisdom. And I want to look at each one of them very quickly because we don't have too much time here. But look at, first of all, false wisdom in verses 13 through 16. Who is a wise man and endued with the knowledge among him? Let, let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness and wisdom. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. Now, James didn't know anything about cars, but he knows about his readers, and he could see that they were in danger here of getting driven by the wrong wisdom and it, uh, the wrong thing moving them forward. Uh, some of them were taking up a teaching role in the church. Verse number one uh, talks about be not many masters. That original word for masters is teachers, and, and uh, you know, the reason in, in old English here, you had school masters. What that's talking about is a teacher. So, uh, not being teach, so he's talking about teachers here that are taking a leading role in the church, and they're doing it for the wrong reason. Charles Erdman puts it this way: They were self-appointed teachers, proud of knowledge, fond of dispute, bitter in their discussions, more eager to defeat their opponents than to establish the truth. I don't know about you, but I picture faces when I read that because I've seen people like that before. Some were using their tongues in hurtful, harmful ways without regard to the damage they're doing. And James saw this bitter envy and this self-seeking pride like he talks about in verse 14. Imagine that. Uh, people who are envious of others and wanting only to advance themselves. Cutting others down for their own advancement. And that's what people do in the world, and unfortunately that's what people do in the church sometimes too. Teachers of the Bible are to be advancing truth. That's what... Preachers, teachers, our Sunday school teachers, we have classes going on right now in the back. Uh, hopefully they are biblically uh, advancing truth. It is not uh, a bully pulpit for my uh, pet peeves or my hobby horses. It is uh, pushing and teaching the Word of God. In fact, Sunday, you pray for me, I'm, and being serious for Sunday, because uh, Sunday will be uh, uh, is, is one of the hardest days of the year um, because uh, Satan kind of pulls out all stops, but we're, we're preaching on, on Sunday on, on the subject of hell, and uh, that's not an easy thing to do. You, you, it's amazing 
how I've had people get sick. I've had babies cry, cell phones go off. Uh, we had the last time I preached on hell, four cell phones went off in one service. That never happens, but it did that day because Satan doesn't want us talking about that kind of stuff. So you, you pray for Sunday um, and uh, as we talk about that. But why, why do we talk about something that's unpleasant? It's not fun. Well, because it's in here and we have to preach it all. We have to talk about it. And uh, I don't enjoy it, but uh, we aren't only doing things we enjoy. I don't enjoy everything on a buffet, all right? But usually the things I don't enjoy are the best for me, you know? And so uh, we, we uh, I don't know how I got off on all that, but uh, preachers and teachers of the Bible are to advance truth, all right? We're not to make up our own minds about what we're going to talk about. Our own agendas, we preach the truth. And so this is what, they were not doing that here, though. They were fueled by envy, self-centeredness, Lying against the truth, verse 14. That's interesting. Working against the very truth they're supposed to be teaching from the Word of God. And James says this is a problem. This is earthly wisdom. And uh, so let's look at that. Uh, what he's, he he's traces the tendencies back to the root here. Uh, he essentially asks them, you know why you're doing this? You know why you're abusing teaching and cutting up others with your words? It's because you're being driven by false wisdom. And he describes what this wisdom is. He says three things, earthly, sensual, and devilish in verse 15. Now, what does earthly mean? This is the false wisdom that, uh, of the world that, that basically has the world as its boundaries. It begins and ends with the world. It does not consider eternity. Uh, the false wisdom, earthly, is simply, simply that, earthly, not looking beyond what we have here. Uh, James' point is obvious here, earthly wisdom is like thinking of people, thinking like people of earth rather than thinking like people of heaven. Uh, all human philosophy, psychology, science, religion, they reveal this earthly thinking that he's talking about here. Now, by the time of Christ, there had, had many great philosophers and, and, uh, Greece and Rome and many had come and gone already. Uh, they had been unable to produce the, any real answers to life's most profound problems. And today, my, modern psychology does no better. It's earthly wisdom. And sometimes uh, what we need is, well, always what we need is from the Bible. So earthly. Then the word sensual. Sensual refers to fleshly appetites. The original word for sensual here in this verse is suchikos. I can't, ex I can't pronounce it correctly, but it means the sensuous Nature ruled by appetite and passion. Now, does not not describe most people today in the world? Ruled by appetite and passion. If it feels good, do it and uh, do whatever feels right. It speaks of the natural man and it has to do with the physical side. And James is pointing to the wisdom that springs from the corrupt desires and affections of the natural man. And the corrupt desires of the natural man ought not be driving our car. That ought not be driving our decisions, the sensuous fleshly appetites that we all have. So when his readers were teaching for the wrong reasons and speaking in the wrong way, they were doing so to gratify their own desires. They were thinking of no one but themselves. Personal agendas. I can't, I can't think of much of anything in the local church that's more harmful to the church than agendas. Everybody has different agendas, and we need to put that aside, work on God's agenda, and that will that'll unify us, all right? So earthly, sensual, and then he adds the word devilish. Uh, he traces now the false wisdom to the devil. When we are driven by false wisdom, we're allowing Satan to slip in the driver's seat and 
that's even more scary than a teenager sitting in the driver's seat, amen? Maybe not too much, but that's even worse. Uh, some, uh, now, now we think, well, I would never let Satan get in the driver's seat, but you remember, um, the devil doesn't come as he's often portrayed by us, you know, ugly, ferocious, evil, wicked, wanting to destroy. Uh, he comes in the garb of wisdom. Can I tell you when the first time the word wise or wisdom was used in the Bible? It was used in connection with Satan. This is what he said to Eve. Uh, uh, it was a tree desired to make one wise, Genesis 3.6. And so the, it's, it's the first time wise is used in the Bible's connection with him, and it's found in the first temptation. And so uh, he is connected with wisdom, but it's worldly wisdom, it's earthly wisdom, it's false wisdom. So James isn't done here with his analysis of devilish wisdom. He wraps it up in verse 16, saying it leads to confusion, and to every evil work, the original word for confusion conveys the idea of instability, a state of disorder, disturbance. We've already said that sometimes uh, cars hit the ditch. <laughs> this is where false wisdom is always going to end you up in. It's going to put you on the side of the road, like blessed van tonight. Okay, sitting on the side of the road, vulgar, <laughs> until we get it picked up. Some of you saw it on the way and just, I've, I've, I've never asked, did you even stop and try to help or offer? You just kept on trucking, didn't you? Yeah, he just, he just honk, honk. That, I, he, he said he heard somebody honk as he went by. That was you, I guess. So, uh, but anyway, <laughs> uh, sometimes we end up in the ditch. Now, here's an interesting thing. Uh, when we look at the original word for evil in verse 16, phallos, it, the primary meaning is easy. Think about that. Sometimes the wrong way is the easy way. You ever notice that? Let me say it differently. Usually the wrong way is the easy way. The right way is often the hardest way. And the other meanings of the same word here, worthless, of no account. And this is the Holy Spirit's estimate of worldly wisdom. It is worthless. It's not going to get you anywhere good. It's a terrible thing to be driven by false wisdom. So, we ought to be thankful that there's another possible driver for the car of life, and that is the Lord himself. Look at verse number 17. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated. Uh, we talked a few weeks ago on unity, and unity is very important in a, in, in a local church. It's very important in the family of God. We, we, want, we strive for unity here, not unity as much with you and me, but unity, all of us unified with the Lord, which if we're unified with the Lord, we're unified with each other. We just had these pianos tuned uh, a week ago, and they weren't tuned to each other. They were tuned to a common standard, but now they're perfectly tuned to each other because they were tuned to the same standard. So we tune to the same standard, and then we're in tune with each other. That's the kind of unity we're striving for. If we go after unity only for unity's sake, what we're going to have is compromise. And we don't want compromise, uh, compromising our convictions and our principles. Uh, there's preachers that I, that, that we've respected in the past that hold hands with Catholics and different things because they're, they're trying to have unity. That's compromise. And we're not after compromise. So that's why it's important. Again, I mentioned this, that it is first pure, then peaceable. We want to get along. But we don't want to get along with impurity. We don't want to get along, along with different gospel. Remember what Paul said? A different gospel, let them be anathema. We, uh, we're, not, we're not trying to be kind and, and uh, unified with that. But let's look at true wisdom. 
It's the wisdom of God. It's the wisdom that is from above, verse 17. Uh, this wisdom springs from God, uh, and he describes it. So let's see what it's like. Number one, it's pure. That means it's free from all the things that characterize false wisdom. It'll never suggest or condone anything unclean or vile. Uh, this wisdom does not defile. It always operates within the bounds of the righteousness and holiness of God. And then it is peaceable. It delights in peace. It promotes peace. Solomon said of wisdom in Proverbs 3.17, all her paths are peace. Wisdom promotes peace. It is gentle, he said. It's not combative. It's not abrasive. It's reasonable. It is courteous. It, this paints a picture of a person who doesn't stand up and demand his rights, but he deflects to others. I think of Philippians 2.3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. What kind of family would you have if everyone in it esteemed everyone else better than themselves? What kind of church would we have if everybody in it esteemed it? And that's a, that's a blessing. That's what our goal should be. And then he says it's easy to be entreated. This is uh, easily obeying or compliant. It's open to reason. It doesn't insist on its own way. It ha it's the idea of a person who's approachable, friendly, and compliant to the will of God. In other words, uh, I'm doing this or I'm, I'm this way, but if if I hear from or see in the Bible that I need to change or adjust my life, I'll do it. That's the, that's easy to be entreated. And uh, we ought to be willing. You know, I always pray that often in the beginning of uh, messages even. Speak to us and let us be yielded to it. Because it's one thing to hear the preaching of the Word of God. It's one thing to be convicted. If we aren't yielded to it, then it's not going to do us any good. And then it is full of mercy. It shows compassion to those who are in need. Uh, the original word here is kindness or, or goodwill towards the miserable and the afflicted with the desire to help them. This is the type of Christian that we ought to be. A story is told of Napoleon uh, who had condemned a man to death. And the man's mother appealed to Napoleon for a pardon. And Napoleon replied that it was the man's second offense and justice must be done. The mother persisted. She says, I'm not asking for justice. I'm asking for mercy. And Napoleon responded to her again. He does not deserve mercy. And the mother replied, "If it, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. It's only mercy because he doesn't deserve it. And Napoleon actually gave in and pardoned him. We don't get mercy from God because we deserve it. And how sad it is when we look around to other Christians, maybe more immature Christians or newer Christians or Christians who have fallen, and we, and we vet them before we give them mercy. And God didn't vet us. He just gave us mercy. Let's have be merciful to others. So th this wise uh, wisdom that is from above, true wisdom is full of mercy. We get mercy because we serve a loving and merciful God, and it is His nature to be merciful. It ought to be our nature uh, because we are partakers of his nature, and we ought, to, we ought to have mercy too. And not wait to see if somebody deserves it, because guess what? They don't. You didn't either, and I didn't either. I don't deserve it. Then he goes on. It is full of good fruits. It's fair. It treats everyone with equality. It does not show favoritism. This full of good fruits is part of our living out the fruit of the Spirit, by the way, too. It is without partiality, he said. It's real. No falseness. No pretense. The expression without partiality comes from original word idiocratos. It uh, occurs only one time, and it's right here in the New Testament. 
it, it was evidently, I did a little reading on it this week, and if what I read was true, is a little confusing to the translators. It, it is described as a negative form of a word similar to decrino, which means to discriminate. So a negative form of to discriminate. Basically, don't discriminate without partiality. I think it's exactly what it means there. So James has already discussed the problem of partiality in the church. Look with me. you got your Bible open still. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 2. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a man poor in vile raiment, and you have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there or sit here under my footstool. Whew. James has went from preaching to meddling here. Because don't we do this? Automatically, maybe? We wouldn't be so plain about it. Uh, but let's just put this in common language. You have one guy who comes in in a three-piece suit. He looks nice, uh, kind of like me, okay? He looks sharp. <laughs> he, and then the other guy looks kind of like Jeremy, all right? Just a, a totally different, different, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, so you've got one guy, he's, he's sharp. He comes up in a nice car. Uh, you can tell he's got money just by the way he's dressed, the way he carries himself. And then another guy comes in and he's, he's dressed in ratty clothing and he's not, he's unkempt and, uh, we treat him different. Come on. Let's just be honest with ourselves. Nobody here but us. We treat him different. I, I do the same thing. I, it was just the most natural thing in the world. We treat him different. And James is saying we oughtn't do that. Not when it comes to the things of the soul anyway. Amen. And so uh, this, is, uh, this is without partiality. That's what he's talking about. God is never swayed by the size of your bank account. He's never swayed by your talent or the color of your skin or the number of letters behind your name. Those things don't impress God. We should not be moved by those things either. And then finally, he said, is with, without hypocrisy. It's sincere. It doesn't put on a front. Hypocrisy is the idea of an actor uh, playing a part on a stage, portraying a character different than himself. That's what hypocrisy is. Uh, the great hypocrites of the Gospels were the Pharisees. They pretended to be uh, holy, but they did not possess it. Jesus said they were like whited sepulchers. They looked all nice on the outside, but inside full of dead men's bones. And so they were hypocrites. That's why he called them that. True wisdom will keep us from putting on airs. Nobody likes to be around a hypocrite especially an obvious one, amen? I mean, it's just it's a, something that turns you off. Be real. Just be real. That's what uh, it's talking about without hypocrisy. This is God's wisdom. When we allow this wisdom to drive our car down the road of life, we're going to achieve a wonderful result, and that result is righteousness, found in verse 18. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in the peace, in peace of them that make peace. Righteousness is... Of course, right conduct, it's right living, living in accordance with the will of God. And there's a sequence here. Right living is a result of people of peace sowing seeds of peace, and the people of peace are those driven by true wisdom. If you, allow, if you are ruled by the world's wisdom, false wisdom, uh, well, we find ourselves there in verse 14 and 15. And if we're driven by God's wisdom, and we find ourselves in verse 17 and uh, 18. So, we got that choice. In our lives, we have the opportunity to demonstrate that we're led by the wisdom from above. And that's going to make peace. 
It's going to uh, bring forth righteousness and it'll be a blessing. Unbelievers will take note. Uh, they will take note and they'll let them, uh, hopefully it'll awaken a desire for them to have the wisdom from God. And when they express that desire, we can point them to Christ. That's why the Bible says, be ready to give an answer always to them that ask. The, the hope that lies within you. 1 Corinthians 1.30, we see that Jesus is himself the wisdom from God. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus is God's wise way of providing forgiveness and eternal glory for all those to receive him. Ultimate wisdom, the Lord Jesus Christ. The other side of the coin is that with every opportunity, there is a danger, and the danger is that we will not seize the opportunities that demonstrate divine wisdom, but will reflect worldly wisdom. And we don't want to do that. I, I, you know, this is a daily choice, really. Can you show godly wisdom one day and worldly wisdom the next day? I mean, yeah, kind of. You know, we, We've got to continually uh, be working toward uh, who's going to be driving our car and uh, who's going to be uh, pointing that way because the danger is always very present and real. We got to, I think we ought to begin uh, every day of our life, Lord, let me this day be driven by your wisdom. Submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit every day. Uh, in discipleship, we give the example of, uh, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, of the pastor's wife who begins every day of her life, walks by the mirror, looks in the mirror, and says, drop dead. That's how she starts every day. I'm crucified with Christ. Every day. And she's telling her, flesh, drop dead. and be led by the Spirit. We got that choice every day of our life. Who's driving? And we let ourselves get fleshly. Let ourselves be ruled by earthly passions. It's false wisdom. And we need to be uh, led by God's wisdom. Who's driving your car?